Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. I'm Chris. And I'm Jason. And today we have with us Donald from Cosmonaut Magazine. He's the chief editor of Cosmonaut and also contributor to the Cosmonaut Magazine podcast, the Cosmopod, and Radical Thoughts podcast. Say hi, Donald. Hey, how is everyone doing today? And today we are talking about two competing souls at the center of Marxism, a soul of Prometheanism and a soul of Romanticism. Okay, so just to get us started, whenever I became a Marxist, just came out of a very conservative Christian upbringing, and uh, I discovered Marx, and I discovered, like, the Communist Party USA's version of Marxism, right? And uh, all the stuff that I was reading was the most, like, scientistic, hardline rationalist kind of uh, Marxist thought you could you could get. And that was what informed my trajectory as a Marxist. So that was all that I was familiar with. And uh, I got to say that it uh, it led to me being just a bit of a new atheist, even, <laughs> uh, without, without meaning to. And uh, I've come a long way since then. And uh, I've been exposed to a lot of stuff that I never would have read previously since having broken away from the stultification of sect life and sort of like opened my mind to all different sorts of things that I would have considered just either anathema or reactionary. And I've got to say that I've got a much more complicated and uncomfortable mixture of thoughts about these sorts of things in my head now than I did before. Yeah, I think um, one thing that really got me thinking about this tension in Marxism between Romanticism and Scientific Socialism or Prometheus or whatever you want to call it is kind of, um, I noticed that like, you know, I was looking, I was just researching the far right and like kind of trying to understand what their ideology was. And I noticed that there was like this overlap with Marxism and this critique of um, capitalist modernity as instrumentalizing all life and commodifying it and kind of destroying mm-hmm. like real community and i noticed mm-hmm. that like in in the far right a lot of their um their answer to this is to kind of um revert to an earlier form or kind of assert the nation as this collectivity against the um the bombardment of all social life by capitalist commodification and so i was like mm-hmm. thinking like, well like i i kind of agree with a lot of this stuff there's not their solutions and so you know what's going on here because i noticed like this like if you, i was really into marx's early works when i first got into marx like i kind of was the opposite of yeah. you like i was yeah. an ultra leftist and i was into like dunayevskaya and like marxist humanism and uh-huh. i was really into kind of this critique of like modernity and the reduction of all human life to the commodity form and then I kind of shifted more in like a scientific socialist direction. Like I kind of embraced the idea of like Marxism as a, as a scientific way of thought. And I think that that kind of is like what is asserted in, in Cosmonaut, my project. Like we call ourselves like a, like a journal of scientific socialism. But at the same time, I think that you kind of need that romantic aspect at the same time. Like I feel like you have to use that tension within Marxism between these two poles to kind of create a, a creative process of a more advanced critique of modernity that isn't backwards looking, that can actually use the powers of reason and science in order to um, create a new human community that isn't just a uh, reversion to um, you know feudalism or whatever. Right, right, or a or a techno utopian nightmare that we have inherited from today's liberalism. And yeah, yeah. Just add like 
better distribution mechanisms to it. So I've always thought that um, that there's, I had two conflicting ways of approaching the world. And one of them is what I thought of as Marxism. And one of them is the romantic side. And uh, it has been very useful and refreshing <clears throat> to recognize that tension existing within like a body of thought which and it, and it makes sense that it would too and it's 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 a testament to how poorly tra- trained we all are on the left when we discover the humanist strain the romantic moment in marx as if like marxism marx's thought wouldn't wouldn't be dialectical uh, and that it wouldn't incorporate both the kind of sense of faith in the progress of technology and humanity and also in the sense of paradise lost uh, as we as the world changes and how those two things kind of inform our approach to the world right and i think that w- when it comes to organizing and when it comes to talking to people about marxism you know being propagandist to use what moves people most is something that we need to do like do we do we focus on the the romantic aspect eulogizing what we've lost and talk about a ways to get back to it without going backwards you know what i mean or do we just talk about the promethean aspects do we talk about our the aborted trajectory that was the stars previously and 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 this is actually something that occurred to me as well is that whenever we talk about the utopian project the futuristic utopian project with like the advanced technology that is predicted by marxism you know by all the marxist thinkers we talk about like auto- automation of undesirable tasks and you know freeing up a uh, unnecessary time to be able to have leisure time that's all gone now that's that's not even like something that's on a utopian horizon for us anymore that utopian horizon doesn't exist anymore it's it's we've got to find our way back to that horizon now now to me anyway the the only future that i can conceive of is one where we use the vast resources of the capitalist of the rule of the previous capitalist state to help clean up the the mess that we've made and then maybe eventually someone's kids get to have that utopian horizon that i can't that i can't even conceive of anymore yeah there's just this also this mm. sense that like humans are just so damaged by capitalism and there is this there is this you know i i, I kind of do believe that there is kind of like this human essence that is just distorted and warped but it's never fully destroyed and it's kind of like repressed but I think that we kind of need to um, have a return of the repressed and kind of embrace like this creative human essence that's being destroyed by capitalist modernity and the commodification of all life. And I think that we have to we have to make that critique of capitalism, and because I feel like so many people, just so like I think almost everyone, even like not just like the proletariat, but also like the petty bourgeois and even the bourgeois, like has this sense of being alienated from their true human potential but also any kind of real human connection and community and i feel like if we don't kind of speak to that feeling then other people will and they will probably do it in a reactionary way they will say well the marxists are just you know they just want like neoliberal capitalism like times 10 you know they want to you know completely destroy the human spirit or as we want to like you know embrace this collectivity that you know, that we can find in the nation or the local community, and yeah, like, um, or in religion, right. or yeah, in religion. Is, like we have, um, yeah, you know, you have a lot of people turning to Catholicism. Like you know, it's like the new like hip thing to do is like become a, a traditionalist Catholic, and you have um, reactionary Islamism, which is a relatively modern mm-hmm. phenomena. And 
honestly did it was promoted by British imperialists to um stem the tide and, of a more and American progressive yeah. <laughs> Well, I was, I was talking about you know, like earlier 20th century. Like you had um, right, right, a right. more progressive, like communistic strain of Islam that was destroyed by reactionary Islam that was really actually funded by British imperialism. And you have like people like Sultan mm-hmm. Galiev, you know, the Bolshevik guy who, um, you know, Muslim national communism. And so you have like all these answers to that feeling of human loss. And I think that what Marxism has to do is it has to be able to appeal to that feeling, but to use reason and and scientific socialism to actually create an alternative to both um, this kind of restitutionist backwards looking thought, but also a, um, just a affirmation of what currently exists. So we uh, in the one of the books that we read, uh, it was Romanticism uh, Against the Tide of Modernity mm-hmm. by Michael Lowy. At the very beginning of the book, Romanticism is described as a movement of protest, of passionate and contradictory protest against the bourgeois capitalist world, the world of lost illusions, against the harsh, harsh prose of business and profit, and that takes on two main poles, one being the reactionary form and one being the revolutionary form. And the revolutionary form has its own splits and the reactionary form has its own splits. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, Lowy places Marx, specifically early Marx, in that revolutionary romantic pole. And he uh, illustrates a bunch of Marx's influences and Engels as well, Marx and Engels. You know, we always think of Engels as like a purely cold stream yeah, yeah. of Marxism kind of guy, but he uh, he references Balzac and Dickens and Carlyle too. Did, like the, didn't he Carlyle say Carlyle the reactionary? Yeah, Carlyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he said he learned more about the world from reading Carlyle and Balzac than from all of the most learned men of science and political economy or whatever. Something like that. It was like that that spoke to him in a different in a different kind of way. Like the person who wrote The Condition of the Working Class in England was not just obsessed with charts and efficiency, for sure. Right, exactly. Well, you know, I felt the same way whenever we were reading um, those excerpts from Spangler in the... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, the... Dialectic oh, of Dialectic. Dialectic. Yeah, yeah, I listened to an right. audio book of that. And... Um, but in, in that, he, t- uh, he references a lot of Spangler. And I just, I remember thinking like, Spengler has this to say about capitalism and modernity? Like, yeah, he's right. I agree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, um, I read Man and Technics by Spengler a while ago, and I was kind of shocked by how um, how true it was in a lot of places. Like, right. The Romantics have a way of appealing to our sense of loss. Because, I mean, you know, I'm, a, I'm an elder millennial. I'm old enough to remember when big gatherings of community were just like a normal thing. You know, having a locus where the community got together. And uh, I remember trick-or-treating as a kid. And you would just, you, you know, you knew everyone in your neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Like, neighbors would have, like, barbecues in their yard and people would just come over. And, you know, there were things like church where, it, like, it was a locus of community. Yeah, yeah. People looked out for each other. And, uh, of course, they judged each other, but they also looked out for each other. Um, yeah. And it's just, like, 
things like that, which are, that's at the tail end of that sort of, that old style of community that existed in the United States, which is gone now, yeah. which is, I mean, you want to talk about the atomization of capitalism that Marx was railing against. Our atomization now is, it's so much worse than I think that Marx ever could have imagined. Yeah, like for me, when I was a teenager, like that kind of community was like the, the punk rock show house. Exactly, like, um, same thing. You know, like yeah. Your band would go play there and you would meet people and you know a lot of these people sucked and they were terrible people but like it, it was it was still this kind of collectivity <laughs> that yeah but they were my terrible people man. yeah exactly and, and yeah I, I just went on a the from 78 podcast and i was talking about he the way he sketch, structures his podcast is where he talks about ghosts from the past and specters from the future mm-hmm. and he asked me what like what the ghosts from my past that haunt me are and the thing that I brought up was that sense of community. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, totally this relates now. to modern day practice too, like actual politics, because I think one of the things that a communist party has to do is it has to create these kind of spaces of socialization and community. Like we kind of, exactly, like there's yeah. this complete destruction of community by capitalism. So what we have to do is create a community that is the community of the proletariat and struggle against capitalism. Like a... Uh, there's this uh, article by this like really lame guy Benjamin Sudebaker called "The Left Is Not a Church." I don't know if you've heard. It's mm-hmm. like a, a big rant against like um, I don't know how his DSA chapter is dumb or whatever. But like I was thinking, like maybe the left does need to be more like a church because yeah, I it does. But like <laughs> I think like a, like a church that's not based in like superstition, but is actually based in like you know a real project that is actually like you know materialistic. And, and scientific and based in reality but at the same time offers this community and sense of belonging that has been lost so we, right. we need and to read the, more lunacharsky then. oh yeah yeah, Lun- I, I, yeah. Uh, did you read um there's an article by we did an episode in swampside chats and i was part of that back in the day on this essay by roland Bohr about lunacharsky yeah I, I listened to that episode yeah. but i don't think yeah, i've read that, that was a that was a tense episode <laughs> but um i i remember yeah, some very heated <laughs> moments there but i think um like lunacharsky like the whole god building thing and maybe it's a little crazy and out there but i think there's some legitimate truth to it yeah i think you have to be a little crazy and out there though like if if, if every vision of the future we have is just an extension of what we don't completely detest now then we don't have a vision of the future right so in order to have one you kind of have to be able to leap a little bit ahead of what's even possible like that's the point of utopia anyways yeah. right is to drive you toward a thing and make it actual and there's this like tension between like well marxism is like looking at the um the contradictions in capitalist society and, and how they work themselves out and how something new is created through the existing society and then you have to, you know you kind of reject the utopians because they just kind of like wrote down these fantasies that were supposed to be something completely new but in the end they still kind of reproduced a lot of the aspects of the current society but at the same time like if we are just like trying to create the existing world now but like more perfected like we're basically just liberals at that point like i feel like that's a really big problem with like fully automated luxury communism is that it's basically this world but um but good like everything you get all the consumer goods you want you get to have the same lifestyle but you don't have to like work or whatever like i think like it it ends up just being a um a more extreme version of what we have now yeah well yeah we did a couple episodes yeah i I listened to those (laughs) i would say that the average experience inside um the dominant institutions of the american left right now 
would have you believe that uh, a we hate the idea of a community like a church mm-hmm. right and b that we actually are just liberals <laughs> because our our vision for the world is is just not distinct from theirs and i say our with a with some scare quotes around it because i think that that part of the left needs to be swept aside well there's also i don't know how you do it but i'd like vision to see it in the left like like you talk to DSA people, like they don't really have like an idea of like, well, what are we fighting for? They just are like, well, you know, I just want socialism, and I, I think like you do have to kind of have this like abstract idea of socialism. That's a good starting point. You have to like actually have yeah. a vision that can inspire people, and like if you look at yeah. like the Second International, like all those mass parties, like um, read Babel's August Babel's Woman Under Socialism. That book is in a lot of ways utopian. And, like, he actually describes, like, what the cooperative commonwealth will be like and describes, like, these comradely relations in production that will dominate. And I feel like and that was a super popular book at the time. That was, like, one of the most read books in the socialist movement. And I think, like, that was a factor in their success was that they actually had visions of a cooperative commonwealth that they could show people. They could, listen, this is the possibility that we can create if we all join together and organize but like today we don't have that and people are afraid of that because they don't want to like be like building Lego sets. Like Lego socialism is what people call it. Well, you know who um who also <laughs> does have that vision have a vision of the future that they're willing to talk about and describe to people and that's the right. Yeah, exactly. They yes. do have a vision. Yeah. And if we don't, then you know, if we don't have something that we can give people just as even as a thought experiment, as like as like an idea to reach towards, then someone will come up with something and then... Well, that's what uh, Wilhelm Reich said about the communists versus the Nazis in Germany. I mean, among other things that Reich had said aside... Yeah. Let's, uh, let's just talk the, about earlier. got that Reich, okay? energy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that he said that I think is, is always worth repeating is that the communists just could not speak to the mystical side of life in a... You know, I don't think that's the determining factor, but it is a factor in the appeal of the like retrograde romanticism of mm-hmm. the Nazis, because the communists would talk about, you know, you know, a kind of linear march of history in this necessarily progressive direction. And it sounds like it has no soul. And then the Nazis come around and they start speaking to yeah, your like, soul. Oh, we want to about the, the holy soil that you grew up. Yeah, from. the blood and slug. You want like really the Nazis like their grand plan was to basically colonize eastern europe and use all that land to give every german worker their own plot of land so they could have their own like you know so they could put their own blood into the soil yeah exactly so they could they, return right? to this like lost and have spiritual connection to the but land. the contradiction is it's... is that in order to invade eastern europe they had to embrace modern machinery and all that stuff and so they just ended up like creating a hyper exploitative version of capitalism for the prop for the purpose of like trying to achieve this like super reactionary romantic utopia their their vision of a jacksonian democracy yeah it really was very similar to jacksonian democracy and then they had then they had to go colonize the subhuman slavs which turns out not so subhuman yeah turns out turns out that the slavs were a true shad we're tenacious and the germans were the virgins (laughs) <laughs> that's right um so that's why i like the uh the way that michael lowey refers to uh romanticism as having two having its own two strains right that there is a conservative reactionary romanticism and then a utopian revolutionary romanticism it's it's worth parsing out the difference between those because you know we sh- we certainly can't talk about 
you know, the romantic experience or the romantic moment in Marx and then have our only examples of romanticism be like maybe poets like Coleridge or else political movements like the Nazis. Like there's going to be a slightly broader field that we're, we're referencing. Um, cause, cause he actually, he actually thinks that there is a fourth pillar of Marx that I, I'd never heard this from anybody else. There's always the three English political economy, German philosophy and French utopian socialism. And you put that together and that's, yeah, the three, um, those are the foundations of, yeah. yeah. And he, but he identifies the romantic critique of modernity as just as important to Marx as overall vision as, uh, you know something like english political yeah for economy. me i always thought the fourth one was um like chartism and like republicanism and like this kind of workers republicanism like mike mcnair talks about that but i think well maybe it's five and there's that also there's also <laughs> the romantic critique of capitalism yeah but three right. is such a nice number yeah, whatever you know? Yeah. it's like yeah, it's, it's like the trinity five is unwieldy <laughs> yeah but it's it's too um it's, it's too like uh eurocentric you know well and so but who so some of the a lot of figures that would be regarded even as conservative romantic were also supporters of the Chartists. Oh, think, like uh, John right? Ruskin. Yeah, but yeah, stuff on yeah. John Ruskin's um, book was really interesting. Like, I knew a little bit about the pre-Raphaelites, but um, I definitely want to learn more about them. Like, like, well, I actually saw an exhibit about the pre-Raphaelites, and they had some like art by William Morris there, and it was really cool. Yeah, the the bits on William Morris made me want to read about him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I he I like that he's he's identified as the opposite of like a Wordsworth because Wordsworth starts as a proponent of the French Revolution and then gets older and more conservative and wary of even the notion of progress. But in both cases, he's a he's a romantic. Um, and then Morris, on the other hand, starts off as a conservative and becomes you know at least a Marxist adjacent kind of leftist, a romantic anti-capitalist of some kind. And really, like I think that's that's good enough. Yeah. For the time being, for the time period, anyway, that's good enough. <laughs> yeah. Even just anti-capitalist versions of socialism would be a really great step forward for us. <laughs> yeah, like actually being against... If we could get all... Actually being yeah. against capitalism would help. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think... um Yeah, Lowy, uh, he, he... Hold on, let me find the... He has like... um Yeah, he has um he has two types of... um Like two types. He has like the... um. Well, actually, he has, like, six different types. He has restitutionist romanticism, which is, like, looking mm-hmm. back to, um, like, you could say that's kind of, like, the Maestra style, like, like um, right. monarchism and Carlyle type stuff. And you have, like, conservatism, like, romanticism, which is more about kind of, like, protecting what remains of the past against the forward march of modernity. Like, um... Like, the Tories as they existed at the yeah. time would have been an embodiment of that. And I think you can kind of talk about um, a lot of, like, the modern, like, not the far right, but the kind of, um, like, the MAGA people, even. They kind of, like, want to preserve, like, what's left of, like, the, you know, 1950s America. Right. And then... Something, something akin to that. But he has, like, um... Yeah, I mean, it's a farcical romanticism, yeah, but I guess it is Yeah, it is, type, you know, yeah. there's this romanticism of, like, you know, the old America before the SJWs ruined it or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's romanticism for dumb people. Yeah, and then you have the fascistic <laughs> romanticism. And, um... Mm-hmm. We've already kind of talked about that, but, uh... Which, uh, which he, which he says is not true romanticism at all. Yeah, and I don't know if I actually buy that, but I think, like... Well, I mean, I, I think like Marx, as Marxism is not like a true romanticism, it contains within it an element of romanticism. Yeah, yeah. That is, it's part of its driving force, just like fascism has that, str- that same yeah. strain within it. I think it. like Italian fascism, there's like some romanticism, but it's definitely way more like modern, like, you know. Just... Yeah, I mean, 
always forward, never but like, back. Um, you know, like a Nazism and the Iron Guard in Romania. Like that's definitely like fascistic romanticism. And uh, yeah, um, the the whole the, the Nazis wanted to recreate like a, a peasant utopia, yeah, yeah, exactly, where every German was a small land landholder. Yeah. And they wanted to do it off the back of, uh, you know, the Slavs and, and exterminate the Jews, just kind of a representation of this abstract modernity. And um, mm -hmm. it's kind of similar to, like you said before, like to the American romanticism of like a yeoman farmers living off the land of dis destroyed indigenous cultures and enslaving Africans. Like Right. A land without a people for a people without a land. Yeah. <laughs> isn't, isn't, isn't that what they say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, okay. Yeah. You want to talk about a romanticism there. Yeah, there's a palingenesis, like a hardcore reactionary, hyper-palingenetic kind of myth yeah, yeah. at the center of, of uh, fascism, at the center of uh, Jacksonian democracy, at the center of Zionism. Like, Zionism. Yeah, it's all about, you know, actually like creating a myth and not basing politics in like this kind of rational, like, oh, we just need to like examine society and then like figure out the best way to like work things out through this kind of democratic discussion and you also you know marxism is honestly kind of like that for better or worse where fascism is like we need to just embrace the myth and the irrational and that mobilizes people like everything you know, fascism is all about like mobilizing people it's about getting it was about getting people to go out and kill commies and and undesirable minorities and the myth is really like the center of that because it's creating this myth that can get people to go out and fight which is you know from sorel yeah, a myth as a mobilizing force isn't isn't in and of itself a bad yeah, thing. Yeah. But it's just rejection, pure rejection of rationality and the emphasis on like the voluntaristic application of will towards achieving the myth and making the myth reality that exists in fascism that separates it from even the Sorelian version. Yeah, of that. yeah. And like the contradiction right. is is to like achieve the myth, you have to like use modern society and all its trappings and so and you end up creating this monstrous industrial superpower, like all focused around war and building rockets that you can shoot at people to blow houses up. And, you know, we all know about like, how Nazism ended up. But it's like using this irrational, like romantic myth to like mobilize people for that end. Hitler right. probably could have used a little bit of like rationalism whenever plotting his defense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, like the. the thing is like the irrationalism of nazism kind of led to its own demise because like you know there's also the famous story that like they were using resources to send jews into the ovens instead of like actually using them to fight the war you know it's, it's very dark stuff well very yes. dark stuff um right so right think thinking of that contradiction i mean that same contradiction exists in any 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 vision for building the world anew right is if it takes any inspiration from the past and i think that we do so we, we also have to recognize that contradiction, like as as we try to basically like achieve the ideals of the past, right? Like by doing what Lowy calls a dialectical movement through the past and into the future. So like, like you know, we've talked about this in other in other terms before about like a vision of a future that's not based on like recreating the Soviet Union, right? But a vision of the future based on the vision for the future that they had in the early mm -hmm. Soviet Union. So there's right. like a... It's still a romantic, uh, it's still a romanticization of like the possibility of that experiment, right? But it's, 
we're trying to find a launch pad through which we can actually conceive yeah, it, in the future, and we happen to find it in the past. One thing I really like about that approach is that like you can find paths not taken. Like the ideas of Bogdanov, yeah, right. the ideas of Lunacharsky, the ideas of... Hell, you can even go back to when Napoleon invaded Russia. If he had emancipated the serfs along the way, he might have won that war, and the whole... You know, the whole history of the world might have oh, been Oh, yeah, different. I mean... Like, you can go back to various periods in history, even the, the earliest bourgeois revolutions, and think about, like, what an advance the French Revolution is over the political course of the English Civil War. Mm-hmm. You can imagine all these futures growing out of just slight yeah, changes. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, there's this um, whole historic thread of the oppressed and the exploited uniting to try to create a new world and, and fighting for their their collective ethics and their and their human needs against a dehumanizing system like you see this in the old peasant revolts against feudalism and i think Mm -hmm. that like what we have to do is we have to look at this whole thread of history and we have to continue that thread yeah there's that um i think it's i've said this recently so i might have said it in the recent podcast but there's this apocryphal mal quote oh no it's joe and lie yeah um and some foreign journalist asks him like what's your uh take on the french revolution you know and he says uh i think it's too soon to tell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right? Just, like that that kind of it's not just that it set us on a course uh on the course of modernity in a way that like we're still contending with but i think even trying to achieve you know the vision of the the enlightened republic that protects the rights of man like that that is still our vision uh even if we don't want to live in the France of the 1790s, we do want to live in the vision for the 1800s yeah, yeah. that they had in the France and of the like, 1790s. And like you know, the vision of the conspiracy of equals of Babouf and the the sans culottes. Yeah. Sans culottes, yeah, exactly. I think the French Revolution is a very interesting topic, actually. On this, um, a very interesting example on this topic, because in the French Revolution, you have this idea of progress of of using science and reason to make a better world, but you also have this kind of romantic aspect in the French Revolution. You know what I mean? Like, there's this idea of, like, we're looking back to, like, you know, ancient Greece and Rome and this kind of enlightened democratic republic where, you know, people collectively govern society. And, you know, there's this whole, like, you have the sans colas and, you know, the um, common people mobilizing. And so you have this kind of synthesis of both, like, romanticism and progress within the French Revolution. And I think... Uh, like a lot of people like associate, you know, the French Revolution purely with um, with this idea of enlightenment, progress of you know, instrumental reason, conquering nature, moving society forward into capitalism. But in the French Revolution, you have this romantic spirit of people trying to achieve something that is beyond this, you know, world of exploitation and utilitarian calculation. There's an author, Paul Johnson. He wrote like a the birth of modernity uh sorry it's called the birth of the modern so paul johnson rewrote the birth of the modern and in it uh he sort of chronicles just like the 15 year period after um the restoration of the bourbon uh, monarchy and he basically identifies the french revolution as like arresting the development of industrial society yeah yeah because of its wild romanticism that it wasn't you know that even in as much as it was an expression of the new world being born, it was also an expression of the old world mm-hmm. dying because it was all about like, you know, the Republic of Virtue being this you know return of man to his natural state mm-hmm. 
which is the opposite of the like well-ordered society desired by the industrialists. Yeah, like uh, I actually wrote an article about the historiography of the French Revolution for Cosmonaut. It's called um, Historiography Wars. And um, like you have the traditional Marxist take of the French Revolution that was like, you know, by Mathias and Lefebvre and Saboul, that it was basically um, a bourgeois revolution. It was about, you know, the, um, the bourgeoisie uniting the people to destroy the remains of feudalism. And then you have like all these revisionist historians who like counter that take. And, and I think one of them, uh, oh, fuck, I can't remember his name. It was not, it's not Fure. It's, um, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll find it and remember it later. But uh, he basically says that the French Revolution was actually a, uh, it's actually kind of a reactionary thing against capitalism that the whole revolt of the peasants and the artisans and all that stuff actually like retarded the development of capitalism. I mean, the thing was, is that it was everything that people say. Yeah, that that's was. what's so fascinating yeah. about the French Revolution. Yeah. Is you have like this situation where like masses of people are mobilizing and contesting different visions of what an ideal republic of virtue would be like. And you have, you know, people like Babu, but you also have like people like um, Lafayette, who's just basically a liberal. And they're all contesting mm-hmm. and trying to create this vision. And it ends in a bloodbath and, uh, you know... A, in napoleon and bonapartism but like at the same time like this is like really a breaking point in history where all these different visions are being mobilized and created yeah even and i i even think that it's it's wrong to to think of the uh, the french revolution as having been uh, or bonapartism as having as representing a failure of the french revolution because what bonapartism did what napoleon did was he exported the ideas of republicanism to every corner mm-hmm. of Europe and implanted them everywhere that boots of the Grand Armée tread. And of course, he was defeated. But those those ideas never went away. Yeah. He smashed monarchies and left republics in his wake, even if that wasn't his purpose, you know. Because history is, uh, you know, Hegel referred to Napoleon as history on horseback. Yeah, yeah the you know. world spirit on horseback. He, right. He, yeah. He embodied the spirit of the age. It wasn't Napoleon that did that. It was like the march of history that did that. Right. It was the general will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> personified at, at at certain moments, personified by uh, individuals like Yeah. Him. And I think like, right, right. you can really make a comparison of Napoleon and Stalin in a way. Because, you know, Stalin, as, as terrible as he was, he's... Trotsky did. Yeah, yeah, Tro- like, um, yeah, I'm just copying yeah. Trotsky here, but like, you know, as, as terrible as Stalin <laughs> was, and, you know, he was basically um, a revolutionary nonetheless against old feudal forms of exploitation, and, you know, he um, ended serfdom in Eastern Europe in World War II. Like, you know, people forget that, like, Germany had, like, serfdom until after 1945. That's a whole other, you know, topic. I mean, I, I contend that, uh, I, I take the, the Lars Lee view of, uh, of Stalin, that he was a true believer, yeah. that he was doing everything that he did because he actually believed in whatever his version of Marxism was. Yeah, if you actually read Stalin's like private letters with Molotov, like he actually believes mm-hmm. he's building socialism and having a revolution. And this kind of view of like Stalin's like, oh, he was just like a secret capitalist who just like only cared about like, you know, power. Like, no, he actually thought he was building socialism. And we should ruthlessly critique the socialism that he built. But, like, it's kind of a cop-out to just act like, you know, he was just, like, um, an opportunist who was just uh, a non-believer who just only cared about power. Yeah, I think that we, um, as I listened to this episode, uh, this, there's this Christian Marxist 
podcast, the Magnificast. I don't know if you've actually heard, heard that. Of it. Um, it's yeah, it's a Christian Marxist podcast, and on it they were talking about the necessity of uh, not saying, well, that's not real Christianity. It's like, well, we have to we have to accept that all these terrible versions of Christianity are Christianity mm-hmm. and deal with that. And I was like, that's what we have to do with Marxism. We have to acknowledge that Stalinism, that Pol Pot. Yeah, even Pol Pot was these, basically, like, yeah. he abolished money and collectivized shit. Like, that's, you know, you can't just say, oh, that's... Pol Pot was a left com. Yeah, he was a ultra leftist. <laughs> like, and you can't say, oh, that was just, he was just like a nationalist who was like calling himself a communist who was actually trying to build capitalism. I was like, no, like he actually, like, you know, all these Stalinist third world people, they were believers, true believers. They, it was a fucked up, like aberrant version that I don't think yeah. uh, gets at what we were, tr- what the project should be trying. To I mean, get yeah, to I have us, like full but... uncritical support for a Vietnam against Pol Pot. Like, oh, absolutely. Hail <laughs> Vietnam and hail the Vietnamese I mean, people. They are heroes. I mean, the problem with the, with their, with their socialism is purely Promethean. That's the... Uh... You know, I mean, among a lot of other things that are just a matter of political choices, like, you know, there there is no critique of alienation coming out of that part of the of the of the socialist camp after a while, and it 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 measures its successes purely in terms of like outputs of you yeah know, exactly, scale. and you see that with like the modern supporters of China, like their whole argument mm-hmm. is basically, oh well, it's just like the superior form of development, like you have to support it. Because it's like ending poverty. We've all heard the spiel before. Yes. Well, right. And who doesn't want to end poverty? Yeah, exactly. You know? who? And if we're going with purely numbers, they're right. Like China has lifted a staggering amount of people that have been lifted out of poverty by the Chinese system. Um, right. I mean, so that's, yeah, that's not, that's not a criticism of, of you know, China that I w- I'm interested in, in maintaining is one that they're like, not doing that they're not making great strides in terms of development and in terms of you know uh increase increasing people's like livelihoods and ending all kinds of like you know they finally broke the historic famine cycle yeah exactly and they you know and they've obviously apparently there's... gotten coronavirus yeah under, i mean under wraps like, like honestly like seeing how china like actually got coronavirus under control despite some fuck-ups in the beginning like that almost made me like want to be a dingus but like then I remember, like, oh, <laughs> like the Chinese Communist Party doesn't actually like care about critiquing capitalism and creating a a socialist community in the end. Like, look, I'll even go as far as to say that, like, I think that um, there, I mean, there is that strain that exists. I I don't know how dominant it is. I don't know very much about China, but I think like the critique the critique of this of this kind of political project shouldn't be oh that they haven't achieved my you know what I envision. Mm-hmm. It's where can that vision be located, you know, and do, how essential do we think it yeah. is? Like if if we can, you know, I, obviously I will I will celebrate and laud the Chinese Communist Party if it's able to, you know, if it produces this kind of version of itself, like the, this church, right, that we were talking about before, this organic community of people. If it can, if we can find a measurable yeah, way yeah. to dis to disalienate a society so that the population uh, is increasingly just that. Class divisions are, are yeah, erased are actually and in, that people become fit yeah, to like rule. Yeah, like if they can actually mobilize people to, in a collective project of overcoming capitalism. But the problem with the Chinese Communist Party is, like, there are dissident, like, neo-Maoist factions who are basically cultural revolution romantics within the Communist Party. But 
the main function of the Communist Party in China is as a corporatist body of managing labor and basically um, as, a, as, a, as a lever, as a, a kind of um, a way for the state to uh, interact with um, production and maintain this kind of um, planned capitalism. They mitigate the conf- the, they mitigate yeah class exactly conflict. that's the purpose of China like in, in in China like in all like enterprises there's a communist party cell and the purpose of that communist party cell is to you know create um, cooperation between employers and employees, which is why you'll hear about it like if you read any of the pro Chinese uh, you know newspapers or whatever it's always like. Well, look, the this factory forced the bosses to give these concessions to the workers, and you're like, okay, well, that's pretty cool. And then you read here, oh yeah, this uh, group of striking workers was all beaten to shit. Three people were killed, and the rest of them were thrown into prison because pressure is applied where it's needed, and it's relieved where it's where it's not needed. Wherever concessions can be made, they're made. Wherever uh, you know heads need to be cracked, they're cracked because it's a body that's made for like the lubrication of the cogs so that class conflict doesn't yeah, it's, break it's, out. Yeah, it's basically lubrication for this whole developmentalist project of... Yeah. And the thing is, is like that should be our critique of the Chinese Communist Party, is that they're not trying to create a community of the proletariat and the, all the oppressed overcoming, you know, the alienation and the exploitation of modern society. Right, and to the extent that we can find that that is what they're doing, then I think that we're on their yeah, side. Yeah, exactly, like... You know, if I lived in China, I would probably join the Communist Party and try to, like, talk to, like, these neo-Maoists and try to, like, you know, work from there. But I try to find what is the tendency in this existing society that represents a break with what currently exists. We knew a a trot that moved to China and joined the Communist Party, became a citizen. Oh, wow. Yeah, he he was like, this is the only functional Communist Party that exists in the world that's doing anything... that's it, doing anything of any value. I want to be a part uh, no, of it. I would say... I don't I don't necessarily know if I would throw myself... I would, I, that, I, I would but, say you know. Cuba is really like where yeah, okay, communism yeah, yeah, is alive yeah. today. And there is um, a left wing of the Cuban Communist Party that is genuinely interested in creating socialism and having a, creating a, a democratic socialism, actually. like Yeah, yeah. His words, not mine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Chris here. Just wanted to remind you guys of a couple of things. First of all, we have a Patreon. And if you like listening to us and think we deserve $2 a month of your hard-earned money, please go and sign up. Right now, our patrons get access to irregularly posted content that includes special episodes, where we do deep dives into stuff that might be too nerdy for our main feed, extra content from episodes that go way longer than we expected, and impromptu discussions of events and articles that we think are worth a bit of attention. The second thing I wanted to remind everyone of is that we are now part of the Lost Horizons Network, which is a dialectical pessimist podcasting network that includes us, The Regrettable Century, Red Library, and From 78. You can listen to us, Red Library, and From 78 using your favorite podcatching app, or find us by searching our respective names on Twitter and Facebook. We also have a special Lost Horizons Network collaboration podcast, which is a roundtable discussion including members of all three podcasts. Our network website can be found at losthorizonsnetwork.com, which will be linked in the show notes. Our roundtable discussions will be available to listen on your favorite podcatching app, and also look out for us on social media. 
just search for the Lost Horizons Network. And as always, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help trick the algorithm into thinking that we are important and have something interesting to say. All right, back to the show. One of the things that I was getting at earlier is like Lowy, when talking about the French Revolution, specifically mentions uh, its sort of romanticism for Greco-Roman forms of democracy Mm -hmm. as being a driving force behind that. And, uh, you know, he, he puts that as one of the five different versions of revolutionary romanticism. He calls it the Jacobin democratic romanticism. Yeah, yeah. And that's absolutely true. That's like, I mean, you know, they had, they would admit it themselves that, oh yeah, we're we're trying to recreate the the uh, the, the Roman Senate. We're trying to recreate, you know, Athenian democracy. Um, they're very inspired by that, and it's the same with the project in the United States as well. Yeah, that's what's interesting about um, um, that kind of republicanism is that it's both romantic and um, kind of Enlightenment progressive. Like they're trying to. You create a more a, ra- a more rational democratic society, but they're looking back to earlier forms of collective existence to try to achieve that. Right. I mean, and you know, I I like to talk about this, anyways. But it was it comes up in the Lowy book that, you know, the Russian Marxists, the early Russian Marxists, when they were like basically competing for political hegemony with the Narodniks, they developed this like very very unromantic like radically unromantic uh vision for for the course of the russian revolution and the course of russian economic development but even marx you know in the even even marx talks about the russian village commune as the uh oh he talks about the russian village commune as the fulcrum of social regeneration in russia yeah Uh, yeah and it's this primitive primitive like pre-feudal holdover uh social arrangement that uh, and it works its way even into the the language of the, um, of the of the Bolsheviks later on. You know when they talk about the, uh, the Obshina, the mm-hmm. old village commune. I think that's the word. Yeah, and that um, village commune existed during the the new economic policy period too. Like it, uh-huh. it yeah. was still there. It really wasn't. It but wasn't really like destroyed a... until until Stalin collectivized agriculture, and even then there was this kind of collectivist spirit in the peasantry. It's a very and it's a, and it's a romantic notion to look back and say like look the Russian peasant has a collective memory or has a has an experience of collectivism of some kind. Even Ingalls um, is uh, said that he thought that it might be possible for Russia specifically to skip over capitalism using the collectivist spirit. Yeah, of exactly, the exactly. Like there is this yeah. strain in Marxism where they say we can we do not have to have this vision where basically before socialism happens we have to like completely destroy the old world through capitalist development like a like a a tractor just mowing it all down like it's we can actually you know know, we can avoid this by looking at the forms of the past that contain a collective spirit and we can combine them with this more modern thing and, and kind of create a synthesis of the two and you see this in um like honestly in one thing i like bolivia for example is not really talked about enough, but like oh, yeah. there's this idea of, you know, it's a plural national state where there's multiple different nations of indigenous people. And there's this idea that, you know, we can have our version of socialism by combining this collectivist spirit of the indigenous peoples 
and hang and asserting their democratic rights, but also, you know, developing into like a modern, a modern like a you know republic of socialism using modern technology, but still maintaining the uh, the collectivity of the indigenous peoples. And you know, if you have that vision on uh, Maritzigay, the Peruvian Marxist, uh, very similar to the idea about the uh, peasant commune, and Maritzigay sees like these kind of collective forms of indigenous people he thinks we can create a um an alliance of you know the indigenous and the workers i think that lowey talks about russell luxembourg looking to the uh south american indigenous peoples mm-hmm. yeah. as a yeah and i think like a lot of marxists like always kind of dismiss the indigenous peoples in latin america they always focus on just the workers and i think that was a big problem because like in russia you had the worker peasant alliance and so i think that this is you know this in uh, Latin America, it had to be an alliance of the workers and the indigenous peoples. And you had to kind of, um, you couldn't embrace this uh, developmentalist, like, you know, idea that we just have to, like, destroy all these people and atomize them into individuals before they can become a proletarian subject. Yeah. That's that uh, combined and uneven development working its way back into the way we understand yeah, yeah, good. Uh, history to, to progress and to work itself out, as opposed to this, like, very... Uh, positivist linear view of like well the society has to go through a certain stage that looks like this because it's already happened elsewhere I mean without without this kind of uh, let's say appreciation for the past and of the legacy of the past and especially where it's still alive without this then Marxism does become just kind of what what Spengler calls the socialism of capitalism mm-hmm. yeah 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 um, Funny but, thing is, like but, Spengler's uh, own idea of like a, of a, like his ideal of society is basically just capitalism, but like with a really strong nation state that like makes everyone like you know follow you know orders. It's very actually he actually ends up like <laughs> creating a hyper capitalism without realizing it. Oh yeah, I mean he's not right, very right, good. Yeah. At it. Like if you read his um, not. I critique mean, he... of, um, of Prussianism and socialism, like it's it's like basically yeah. like actually um, you know we're gonna have you know. 12 hour work days and everyone's going to like follow this organic state and do what they're told. So we're going to create the like ordered society of feudalism, but like, you know, it's, 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 but he wanted a strong social safety. Yeah. Group. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a terrible vision and uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, and that's the problem yeah, with all these yeah. reactionaries I mean, is like, they'll say some stuff that's like really dead on about like modernity and like how like everything is just like a commodity on sale and how liberalism, like, destroys all community but then they'll just be like so that's why we need to um create an ethno state where everyone is like you know same skin color and yeah (laughs) well you know uh, in the reactionary even the reactionary forms of uh that pay lip service to some type of socialism it's always on the backs of someone else you know like i guess uh richard spencer you know he um he considers himself sort of a uh a white nationalist social yeah yeah he's like really. a kind of a duganist nazwell type like he yeah, does not like capitalism and, uh, like, that's the thing a lot of people don't understand about fascists is that they don't like capitalism no and the people should stop being confused by uh rightists who criticize capitalism because mm-hmm. that's a thing and it has been for a very long time yeah like if you read alexander uh, dugan's fourth political theory there's parts that just like sound like marxism straight up yeah i have and i don't recommend it <laughs> Yeah, it's not a, it's not a good yeah, read. He's, he's he's a total yeah, we, crank. We read that for uh, one of our early episodes on post-fascism that we did. Yeah. 
uh, I think that what's interesting, and I brought up Rosa Luxemburg earlier, is she takes issue with the idea that capitalism is a purely progressive force in, in the period that she was in. Like when she talks about capitalism moving into the Indian subcontinent through British colonial rule and into Africa, uh, she talks about it smashing uh, any kind of remnant indigenous sort of egalitarianism and imposing upon it something that was brutal and without merit. Well, and I think she even says it's not bringing it's you know it's not bringing them into the future; it's throwing them backward. Right, and, and I like think that, that. She, there might have been something to that. Yeah, that criticism. When you look at the 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 brutal rule of the of the British in India and the way that the, the and the trajectory of India since. Oh yeah, so the thing is like um, and like I actually have an article coming out that talks about this, but like if you look at Marx's early writings on India, like he has this idea, like, oh you know, like it's brutal and terrible, but like they're creating like you know the possibility of modernity, and so like you know. Like, Marx was kind of arguing with these, um, he was arguing both with supporters, like, outright, like, British nationalist supporters of colonialism, and these kind of, like, um, romantics who kind of, like, oh, we have to, like, you know, just let the indigenous people be and let them live their life. And Marx was kind of arguing against both of them, like, this is kind of, like, a dialectical, like, oh, you know, but it's terrible and all, but, like, it's creating the basis for, like, a new civilization. But actually, if you look at colonialism in India, like, it actually, like, destroyed all their domestic industry and really actually didn't right. like help create a, a new productive base. It actually it mostly destroyed the productive base that was there and created one that was completely subsumed to like foreign interests. And right. that's the same thing is repeated throughout Africa and the, the legacy of colonialism in Africa. I mean, just look at the Belgian Congo and look at Rwanda, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I think that that we have distinct like definite definitive proof that colonialism wasn't a, didn't have a positive impact. Yeah on uh the global and i South. think uh marx like that's his views on colonialism have that tension between like prometheanism and romanticism as well this whole idea of like you know like i said the idea that they're creating the basis for modern capitalism which is the basis for uh you know proletarian revolution but it's also destroying like you know like we should support them when they rebel but their rebellion is actually kind of reactionary and backwards looking and, but I think uh, when Marx later on, he actually starts to kind of develop a, an anti-imperialist, like straight up just anti-imperialist politics where, right. you know, Engels and, you know, he says that um, if there's a socialist revolution in England, they have to just like, you know, all leave India and like have them have like total self-determination. They can't bring socialism to India through bayonets. Right. Yeah. I mean, his I was going to say, like, that's what happens as he continues to observe the world is that a lot of these like tendencies um that are present in capitalist development just don't seem to be playing out in the same way as in places like india mm -hmm. or or any of the colonies of europe and you know i think that the that's part of where to ascribe to marx's thought um just a prometheanism would be to misunderstand uh the way it changes back and forth even and the way that it it's it's weaves itself through experience so that, you know, you have this kind of humanist strain in Marx that sometimes is absent and sometimes is dominant. And it kind of depends on what's being assessed. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, you would only have a vision of British rule in India as, yeah, it's messy, but one day there will be a, a proletarian revolution. So like, which is heartless. And it's not at all the way that um, that's not it, that wouldn't be any more useful then than it would be now to look at the way 
that multinationals are destroying the Amazon and say, yeah, but one day we'll live, you know, on moon colonies <laughs> and we'll have space colonies yeah. because of because of the horrors being inflicted upon the world at like at this moment. Um, I think we have to recognize them as horrors that need to yeah, be stopped. Yeah, exactly. And, period, and that's the you know? thing like, um, you know, I think I try to think of like today where are like the kind of like where you have like strains of Marxism that are like overly Promethean. And strains of Marxism might be overly romantic and don't actually look at the tensions. And like when I think of like the overly Promethean side, I think of like Leigh Phillips. And I don't know if you know who he is. He like wrote that book, People's Republic of Walmart. The uh, People's Republic of Walmart. But like his Walmart whole guy. like idea of Marxism oh, yeah. is that like modernity is awesome. Like it you know subsumes nature to human will, and that's great. We need to do that more and more and more. And like ecology people who like want to like you know criticize development or just like backwards looking like hair shirt hippies. And, like, you know, Marxism is just all about, like, you know, upping modernity full on and just, you know, conquering nature. And, you know, we can't let, like, our sentimental attachments to the past get in the way of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Look at look at how good we are doing at conquering nature. Yeah. I was about to say, before you brought that up, I was going to say, like, I think we can all agree that at this point, capitalism has outlived its progressive. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And is purely retrograde and destructive. Like, I think what... um. You know, the real like progressive aspect of capitalism is that it creates a community of the proletariat, and that 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 doesn't automatically happen. It has to happen through the conscious organization of a community of the proletariat. The thing is, is that capitalism basically connects all of humanity in a collective labor process. It's it's or it's you know, it's basically guided and, and controlled through these like spontaneous market forces or this kind of detached, commodified. Form. But in the end, like everyone it creates this connection of like people who are all laboring in some kind of connection with each other. So I think the question is, you don't have to look back to an old community because through the, the community of the proletariat, through this like uh, we're creating comradely productions of labor, we can create a new community that kind of preserves the best aspects of the past, but isn't retrograde at the same time. At this point in the development of capitalism, though, I think they figured out that we were building a community of labor and they decided yeah, to smash yeah. it. That's and now we're like even more atomized than we yeah, were as you know, peasant and that's communities. the thing is that they, yeah. like the capitalists do consciously try to find ways to organize production and design technology so that people are more atomized and aren't able to form collective you know, projects. And so, right. right. This, is, this is what, when Ernst Bloch is saying that capitalist, capitalism is responsible for the destruction of imagination. Um, that's not just about like sweeping away artisan, like handicraft industries in, in order to do mass production, but it's also about sweeping away people's capacity to imagine a world, um, that is greater than the one they already live in. And we do have a community of the proletariat worldwide and is, it, it materially exists, right? Yeah. But it doesn't exist, uh, for itself. Yeah. In fact, it has less of an imagination than, than it did, uh, a hundred years ago in, in a collective sense. I guess what is our response to that seemingly long, well, this long low ebb of class consciousness? Or do we feel like we're like past the end of history and we just can't see it yet? You were wrong. You let hell enrage you. And you let. Love wants to be both gentle and cruel. You 
Make our movements lighter. 